0: There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, And more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with the Habit Master, Charles Duhigg. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and the author of the books Smarter, Faster, Better, and The Power of Habit, which was on the New York Times bestsellers list for three years. Charles is an expert on the science of productivity and habit formation. He currently writes for the New Yorker magazine and is the founding host of the wildly popular How To Podcast. In this episode, we hear about the journey Charles took to become a world-famous writer and how his time as a reporter in Iraq first put him on the path to studying habits. We'll then hear him break down the three key components to creating habits, cue, routine, and reward, and how establishments like McDonald's use these methods to keep us hooked. We'll then discover what a keystone habit is and why these types of habits have a domino effect, helping us to build many positive habits at once. If you want to learn how to create meaningful habits, keep on listening. Hey, Charles, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I am very excited for this interview. I've actually been trying to get you on the show since I started Yap back in 2018. The Power of Habit was one of my all-time favorite books. It was actually the first book that I read to get me kickstarted on my self-improvement journey. And you were one of the first people that I tried to get on the podcast. Now, three and a half years later, you're finally here. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us today.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start back to your childhood. I know you don't speak about your childhood very often, but from my understanding, you grew up in New Mexico, and I didn't find too much research about what it was like growing up for you. So let's start there. What was your childhood like, and how did you first get into writing?
1: I mean, my childhood was pretty normal. I, yeah, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, um, and I got started in writing because um, I guess when I was in middle school, I didn't know what to do during the summer. And so my mom signed me up for an internship. And the internship that was available was at the Albuquerque Tribune, which is a newspaper that doesn't exist anymore. And so I went there and spent the summer working on the sports desk. And I didn't know anything about sports, but I just found I really enjoyed writing. So it was fun.
0: That's that's awesome. And, you know, I know it's going to be the 10 year anniversary of the power of habit in 2022. So I thought we could really just spend time on that book specifically and dive super deep. That's what we do at YAP. And uh, let's start with the genesis of the book. From my understanding, you were a journalist in Iraq. And that's where you first had the idea to study habits. So talk to us about that experience and how that kind of kicked you off on this journey to really understand the power of habit.
1: Yeah. So I was a, I got an MBA at Harvard Business School and I decided to become a journalist midway through Harvard Business School. And so I went to the LA Times. And at the LA Times, they sent me to Iraq to cover the war. And when I got there, I was trying to figure out what to write about, and part of being a, a journalist in Iraq is that you tend to get embedded with the military, and so they, they sent me down to this um, town named Kufa, which is about an hour south of Baghdad, in order to embed with the army that was there. And I got there and there was this, this army major who was really, really interesting. I started talking to, he was a really smart guy. And I asked him, you know, why are you here? What's going on? Can you sort of help me get oriented? And he said, well, I was sent here really to stop the, the riots from happening. And they had been having all throughout Iraq at this point, they had been having a lot of riots that were killing people. And so the army major arrived in, in, in Kufa and he met with the mayor and he asked the mayor, you know, he had a whole list of of like requests, like can you stop the gun runners? Can you stop the suicide bombers? And the mayor was like, "Look, man, if I could do any of that, I would have already done it like i can 't do any of that stuff and so the, the last thing on the major's list was you know, can you remove the food vendors from the plazas? And the mayor was like, "Okay, that one I can do. I can get rid of all the kebab sellers that are in the plazas and so uh, uh, about a week later, a bunch of people arrive into kufa and and there's a in Kufa there's a there's a mosque named the Grand Mosque of Kufa which is a very important site in Shia Islam and so there's a lot of of pilgrims who show up to worship there. And so, and this had been the site of some previous riots because there were so many people. And so the way that a riot normally develops is that there will be a bunch of troublemakers who show up and then spectators will come to watch the troublemakers. And it usually takes you know, six or seven hours for a riot to really develop. And more people will come to watch the, the people who came to watch the troublemakers and the crowd will get larger and larger until finally it's large enough that someone throws a bottle and, and a riot breaks out. And so, a couple of weeks after the, the major arrives, there's some, there's some troublemakers who show up near the Grand Mosque of Kufa and the plaza that's out in front of the mosque. And then some spectators show up and then more spectators. You know, time keeps going by. And, and finally, at about 5 or 5.30 in the evening, the crowd has gotten large enough that it's at the conditions where a riot is likely to happen. And as the major is telling me the story, he's, he has drone footage and he's showing me the drone footage from overhead. And he says, now watch the people at the periphery of the crowd. And the people who are at the very periphery of this large, large crowd around the Grand Mosque, they start like looking over their shoulders. And he says, look at them. What they're doing is they're it's 530. It's dinner time. They're looking for the kebab sellers who are normally in the plaza. But, of course, we had removed the, the kebab sellers. All the food vendors had been removed. So these people at the periphery of the crowd, they kind of just wander off, assumably to you know, walk home and have dinner. And then there's another ring of people who see these people wandering away and, and, I guess, think to themselves, oh, there must be a better riot going on somewhere else. I'm going to follow them and see where they're going. And so they kind of wander off. And over the next 45 minutes, the plaza essentially kind of clears out, except for the, the troublemakers. But because the troublemakers don't have an audience anymore, they go home, too. And in the months that this major had been there, there hadn't been one riot. And I asked him, like, how did you know that this would work, that removing the food vendors would stop the riots? And he said, look, I didn't really, but I, when I joined the military, it was kind of this education in how habits function. The military, U.S. military, and all militaries, are some of the biggest habit change experiments on Earth. They, you know, your instinct when someone's shooting at you is to run away, and they teach you the habit to, to shoot back. And he said, once the military had taught him to see the world in terms of habits, it really changed how he saw everything. And that's how he was able to to figure out that removing the food vendors might influence how this crowd behaves.
0: That is so cool. I feel like people don't realize how powerful habits really are. So can you talk to us about how often habits make up our day as humans?
1: Yeah, there was a, uh, an experiment or a series of experiments done by a researcher named Wendy Wood, who's now at, at USC. And what she found is that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. So about half of, of your behaviors each day is our habitual. And a, and a habit is a decision that we made at some point, but we stop making the decision and continue acting on it, right? So at some point, you decided to have you know an unhealthy sandwich for lunch rather than a healthy salad. And now when you walk into the cafeteria, you get that same sandwich, but it's not as if you're really making that choice right it just happens automatically it happens on on like autopilot that's because the habit has taken over So
0: let's break down the anatomy of the brain, because I think it's really great context for my listeners. I know that you describe it as an onion, where the outer layers are more complex. That's where your more complex thinking happens. That's the most recent structures of your brain. And the inner parts are more primitive and automatic. So can you explain all of this to us so that we can understand really how our brain functions and where habits live in the brain?
1: Yeah. So one of the oldest structures in our brain is named the basal ganglia. And every animal on earth has a basal ganglia. The basal ganglia, it's kind of almost at the center of the brain, near the, the brain stem where your where your spinal column meets your brain. And the basal ganglia basically exists to create habits. And and the reason why the basal ganglia exists and why every animal has one is because without this ability to create habits we would never have evolved right the the capacity to take a behavior and make it automatic is essential for the development of higher thought so if when you walked down a path you saw a rock and an apple and you had to think really hard to decide which one to put in your mouth well then you would spend your entire day trying to evaluate rocks and apples. But because it becomes a habit, oh, the red one is the one that I can stick in my mouth. The gray one is the one that I should kick to the side. That's how you can get the, the free space within your brain to think up fire and building homes and then aircraft carriers and video games, right? This ability to take behaviors and make them automatic, make them into habits, that is how every species excels and so it's a really important and really valuable skill and and it's amazing that humans can take the most complex behaviors and make them habitual but it also means that because we essentially stop thinking in the middle of a habit that unless we're deliberate about which habits we let into our lives that things might go astray
0: Yeah, totally. All right. So let's talk about the components of a habit. So there's three main steps that you talk about in your book, cue, routine, and reward. Could you talk about that to us? Because I know you'll explain it very eloquently. And then I will ask you some follow-ups about each
1: step. Sure, sure. So yeah, so as you mentioned, we tend to think of a habit as one thing, right? But it's actually these three separate things. There's a, there's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. And then, and then the routine, which is the behavior itself, what we think of as the habit. And then there's the reward. And every habit in your life has a reward, whether you're aware of it or not. It's that reward that the basal ganglia latches onto in order to, to make that behavior automatic. It's because you anticipate. That reward. So when you back your car out of the driveway, you know the first time you back your car out of the driveway, you really have to concentrate on it very hard. But you know, the, by the fifth or sixth or ninth time, you can kind of almost do it on autopilot, right? You don't have to pay that much attention. That's because it's become a habit. And what's important is that if we could see inside your brain when you back the car out out of the driveway. Your brain is anticipating a reward. And sure enough, when you safely make it into the street and you start driving away, there's a little, little squirt of neurotran- reward neurotransmitters, dopamine and and other, other chemicals that sort of make yourself feel good and like a sense of reward. You're not aware of that reward sensation, but your brain is aware of it. And, and our brain pays attention to rewards and punishments, and it makes the things that happen that give us a reward more more automatic, easier to access. And so that's really important because what we know is, you know, when most people think about changing their habits, they focus on the behavior, on the routine. But what we now know from a lot of studies is that it's the cues and the rewards that are really the tools that give us the, an ability to change the, the behavior. And so if you diagnose the cue and the reward driving a particular habit, that's how you can change it.
0: So let's dive deep a little bit on these three steps. Let's start with cues. What are some examples of a cue or a tr- something that triggers a routine that you have?
1: Yeah. So almost all cues fall into one of five categories. It's usually a time of day, a particular place, the presence of certain other people, a particular emotion, or a preceding behavior that's become ritualized. So like what's, what's a habit that you have?
0: Um, exercising.
1: Okay. So, so tell me about when do you normally exercise? Tell me about, uh, about when you exercise. After
0: work. Once I'm done After with work. my last okay. meeting.
1: Okay. And so what, what do you do? What happens before you exercise that makes you say like, okay, I'm ready to exercise. Now's exercise time.
0: I put on my on-demand workout and as it's starting up, I'm getting my weights ready. I'm putting on my shoes and like getting my water and, and getting ready to work out.
1: And is it a consistent time of day? Like, is it usually at five o'clock or six like o'clock? Like seven o'clock
0: it... every day. Seven
1: o'clock. Okay. Okay. So for you, for your exercise habit, it, it sounds like there's probably a, a handful of cues. One of them is a time of day that it's it's when you're you know sort of at seven o'clock in the evening. It sounds like there's a preceding behavior that's become ritualized, which is you put on your workout tape and you sort of set up your, your weights. My guess is that there's probably some emotional cues that you sort of have a, a calmness or an anticipation. You're looking forward to a certain reward that you know working out gives you. So that's how we find those cues, right? And and if somebody wants to figure out what the cue is for it, for a habit, literally, you could just have a piece of paper next to your desk or you know, wherever you are and just write down those five things whenever you feel a craving for a certain habit. If, I, if you feel a craving to have a donut or a craving to exercise, just write down you know, what time is it, who else is around, how do you feel emotionally, what behavior did you just do, where are you, and you'll figure out really, really quickly what the cues are.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. So let, let's talk about rewards a little bit, because when I think of a reward, I think of like money or food, but it can also be emotional. So talk to us about what a reward can be and what are the qualities of a good reward?
1: Well, a reward can be anything that you find rewarding, right? So anything that, that you find to be satisfying or to provide you with something. So let's take exercise. When you exercise, how do you feel afterwards?
0: Um healthy <laughs> okay. accomplished energized
1: okay, so you just mentioned three potential rewards, right? so one reward that you mentioned is kind of a is a sense of pride, an emotional an emotional reward that you have yourself, which is accomplished. you also feel energized like you have more energy, so that's probably like a, there's actually a neurochemical reaction going on there you said that you feel healthy so that that's different from feeling accomplished because oftentimes when we feel healthy that could be a physical sensation that you have it could be a an emotional sensation that you have so if you if you could only have one of those what do you think you know if you could only get one thing from exercise which one, which thing do you think would be most rewarding for you
0: The energizing part, most likely.
1: The energizing part. Okay. And how do you know that you feel energized? Like, what do you do that proves to yourself that you feel energized?
0: I go do some more work, honestly. (laughs) I have a big company. So I go and, you know, work on my agency and get a new burst of energy for a couple hours.
1: Okay. So I think that for you, it sounds like Exercise provides probably energy that it gives that you've come to associate the act of exercise with giving you something that's rewarding, uh, uh, some more energy that you can then direct to what you want. And and I think, you know, recognizing what that reward is, now you could have easily said, well, actually after I exercise, I I take a nice long shower, right? And it just feels so good to be able to relax or or I like that soreness in my muscles feels kind of good. Or or you could say, you know, I keep track of the exercise I do every single day and I have this journal that I put it in and it makes me feel really accomplished to like check off each day that I've gotten the exercises done. So there's different kinds of rewards of the same behavior can provide to different people. And one of the things that's important about creating habits is recognizing what that reward is and figuring out what really drives you. Because at the core of that habit is a craving. Your brain is craving that reward. And then the more you kind of understand what that craving is, the more you can... You can direct your behavior in ways that make exercise more and more automatic.
0: Yeah. I I would love to stick on cravings a bit because I think this is a really important point that a lot of people miss. Can you explain why a cue and reward is just learning by itself? But once you add on a craving, that's when it can actually become a habit. Could you help us understand that a bit more?
1: Well, yeah. So, so the, this cue routine reward that we talked about is referred to as the habit loop, right? And so the question is, how does that loop start spinning? Like, what's the, what's the driver that gets you to a place where when you see the cue, you want the reward enough to do the behavior that you know will deliver that reward? And that's craving, right? Our brain has this ability to anticipate a reward and begin craving the reward. I, everyone who's listening has felt this, right? There's your at your office and you're not hungry at all and then suddenly you see like a donut and at that moment when you see the donut that when that cue is you have a visual cue you begin craving the donut you're like like start thinking like I really want a donut now 10 seconds ago you weren't hungry but now now you're craving having a donut and that's because your brain begins anticipating and then looking forward to receiving this dose of carbohydrates and sugar and tastiness and and that anticipation is what creates craving.
0: So I'd love to get a real example of how the habit loop works and how cravings work. So why don't we take McDonald's for an example? Can you talk to us about how people can get addicted to McDonald's?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that McDonald's has done really, really well is it has a... So every McDonald's location looks basically the same, right? Um, In fact, so much so that oftentimes the the McDonald's will mandate how you design the actual store itself, so that it looks very similar to other stores. And of course, the packaging is the same. They uses these bright colors. This is all cue creation. What they want to do is they want it to make it as easy as possible that when you see a McDonald's or you walk into a McDonald's, that the cues suddenly make you begin anticipating what McDonald's can deliver to you, this reward that you've become accustomed to receiving from McDonald's. And the food itself is very similarly designed. You know, one of the things that McDonald's does, for instance, is its French fries are designed to basically begin kind of falling apart in your mouth as soon as you put them in your mouth. And the reason why is because they want to spread the oil in the fries as fast as possible because our body likes oil. It likes that salience, that feeling of, um, of fullness that we get from, from consuming a, a fatty and carbohydrates. And so... The reason why they make the fries that way is because if you deliver that reward right away, then as soon as people see the golden arches, as soon as they start thinking about those French fries, they begin anticipating eating those fries and the reward that the fries will deliver. And that's what makes it much easier to pull the car over and go through the drive-in and say like, give me an order of fries. Even though we know French fries is like literally like the worst thing you can possibly eat. It's very, very unhealthy, but they're able to use cues and rewards to make it almost automatic for us to want them.
0: Yeah. And then how fragile are these habits? So if the McDonald's that you go to in town shuts down, are, are you going to go drive to the next McDonald's to get your meal?
1: Well, so so one of the things that's interesting is that when cues are disrupted, very often people's behavior will change very easily, right? So the pandemic's a great example of this. If, if people think about the habits that they had during their workday, there might have been some unhealthy habits that they were trying to change, right? That they tried to, to, you know, drink less coffee. They tried not to have that donut from the break room. They tried to to get themselves to to spend less time on social media. And at work, it was really hard to do that, right? Because all these cues were around us that we had become habituated to. We had all these habits in place. And then suddenly, we stopped going to work. We're working from home now. And People will find it very easy to change their behaviors when the cues are disrupted. So, yeah, if McDonald's shuts down, then suddenly people stop craving fries because they're not driving past McDonald's anymore. So habits have this real hold on our our brains and our behavior, but they're also very flimsy that when the cues and the rewards are destabilized, it can often be very easy to break a habit that otherwise felt very, very hard to change.
0: Yeah, and I want to go into how to change a habit, but I do want to dive into some more examples here. Let's talk about supermarkets because supermarkets also play tricks on our psychology and get us to do some cool habits. Can you uh, explain that to us as well?
1: Sure. So one of the things that supermarkets do is that they try and take, they, they do two things in particular. They try and take the types of foods that they know will trigger a craving and put them in places where they're very easy to see. So when you walk into a supermarket, one of the first things that you'll see is you'll see a very high carbohydrate um, foods, whether those are like apples, right? Because apples are crunchy and they have lots of sugar in them. Sometimes they'll have like these like pallets of chips or other things that like deliver like a really fast taste sensation. And they put them there because they know that if, if they put those things there, people will start thinking to themselves, oh man, I love those chips. Those chips are so good. And even if they don't grab a bag of chips right at that moment when they walk in, as they're walking through the supermarket, part of their brain will be thinking about those chips. And so now maybe they pass some cookies and they're more primed to grab those cookies. Or they walk past uh, the chip aisle and they're more primed to say like, you know, I really should get some chips and bring them home. So supermarkets will take advantage of that. The second thing that supermarkets know is that willpower is like a muscle, right? And it gets tired with use. And so one of the other things that they do is that they put a lot of the healthy things up front as you first walk in. And then they'll create the way that you walk through the supermarket that you're going to be passing some of the really tasty things that you don't really want, that you know are bad for you, but you really like, like cookies or sweets or things like that. And then when you get to the checkout counter... They put a bunch of candy by the checkout counter, right? High margin items that are really sweet and really, really tasty, or like those like cheesy magazines, like, you know celebrity magazines. And the reason they do that is for twofold. First of all, they know that you've been using your willpower throughout this entire time you're in the supermarket to basically say no to the cookies and say no. And so your willpower muscle is tired. And so now that your willpower muscle is tired, now when you're on the checkout line, now is when they give you the last final temptation and they know that you're more more likely to grab the thing and throw it into your cart because you've been using your willpower muscle so much that it's all tired out. The second thing is that they know that if you're waiting in line, it's kind of boring and and boredom is a form of tension. And in order to relieve that tension, oftentimes what we do is we look for something that delivers a fast reward. So simply putting someone in a line where they're kind of bored makes them more likely to reach over and grab that candy bar, or those cookies or that dumb magazine and throw it into their cart.
0: I feel like people don't really realize how much these companies and marketing departments and how much money people are putting into creating these habits for consumers and and that this is actually things that people research and spend a lot of time on. So I'd love to bring it to the future because what comes to mind is all these social media platforms and Netflix and all these things that we're addicted to. Can you talk to us about how these kind of platforms form a habit loop today?
1: Sure. Well, I, so let me ask you, how much time do you spend on social media each day?
0: Well, this is my my job. So I, I run a marketing agency and for many clients. And so I'm always on social media, but it's more like my work. So I don't know if that's a great example.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, do you ever go on to like, do you enjoy your time on social media? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you enjoy about it?
0: I like talking to my fans and seeing what they're writing in my comments and things like that. And, and my okay. DMs.
1: And so, and what do you think... What what kind of reward does that provide for you?
0: I feel like my work is meaningful when somebody comments or DMs me and says they love listening to the show or whatever it is or that I've helped their lives.
1: So I think I think that one of the things that social media does is it makes it easy for us to access those rewards, right? I mean if you if you were to post something and you go on and you go and you look at it and you see that there's there's no comments associated with it. that people haven't seemed to interact with that content very much. I'm sure that there's a part of you that feels a little bit disappointed, right? You say like you know, what happened? Why aren't, why don't people like this? So you have a craving for an anticipated reward the types of content will deliver to you. And, you know, social media platforms are very good at doing this. Now, Netflix is different. So Netflix isn't a social media platform. But for the platforms themselves that allow this kind of back and forth, you know, creating a like button, creating the ability for people to comment easily, there's this anticipation of feedback. And when the feedback's not there, there's a little bit of disappointment, right? And, and the feedback oftentimes feels very interactive. It feels very, very real. So someone hitting the like button, you know, if two people hit the like button, that doesn't mean very much. If 100 people hit the like button, it tells you something. But in comments, if two people leave comments and those comments are really interesting and they say something, then that on its own can be enough. And so that's one of the things that social media platforms do is they understand what kinds of rewards we want and they help facilitate them.
0: Yeah, and I could imagine that all those push notifications and things like that become our cues to, to check out our social media or the rings and the dings that, that these platforms do whenever somebody's messaging you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that it, now I turn off all the not notifications because, and I don't spend that much time on social media platforms, but turning off the notifications means that, you know, there's fewer cues there. And so it's less distracting. And as a result, there's less of a of a need to to turn to these platforms. But certainly if you're sitting there working on something and you hear the ding that means, you know, that someone's commented on your post or some, or you've gotten a notification of some other kind, there's this part of your brain that says, oh, go check that, go see what that says. Like maybe that's gonna deliver this reward. And sometimes the reward is simply novelty that it delivers like some type of like momentary burst of new experience, which when you're in the middle of writing a hard memo is always kind of nice, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how to change a habit. So from my understanding, you can change the routine part of the habit if you want to actually change the habit. And I think a great example to take my listeners through is Alcoholics Anonymous. So talk to us about Alcoholics Anonymous and what they do to actually get people to change their habit of being an alcoholic.
1: Yeah. So, so a lot of times when people talk about habits, they talk about breaking a habit, right? trying to extinguish a, a, a bad habit. And what we know from the research is that this is the wrong way to think about habit formation. Because once you have those neural pathways associated with that cue, that routine, and that reward, the neural pathway is going to stay there. So through willpower, you can, you can ignore a habit. You can try and repress it. But that means that when you're stressed or when you're tired, that habit might just erupt out again. So what psychologists refer to is they refer to the golden rule of habit change, which says rather than trying to extinguish a habit, you should try and change a habit. And that means diagnosing what the cue and the routine and the reward are and then finding a new behavior, a new routine that corresponds to that old cue and that delivers something similar to that old reward. As you mentioned, AA is a perfect example of this, right? So for many people who have drinking problems – they have a sort of a habit dysfunction, which is, you know, they come home from work and they've had a long day. That's their cue is that now they're ready to relax. And and so they grab a beer or a glass of wine, maybe two or three or four, more than they would like. And what it allows them to do is it allows them to, to physically relax. And very often people will do this in the company of other people, right? They'll do it at a bar, they'll do it with friends, and they'll get into a habit where the reward that's getting re- – delivered to them is a sense of catharsis and release and relaxation and social time, right? I can be with my friends. I can talk about what's, what's bothering me. I can relax and sort of be open and free about what's going on in my life. And I've come to, to associate the alcohol and particularly the physical effects of the alcohol as the catalyst that allows me to do that. So, the cue is a certain time of day. The reward is a certain feeling that I get where I get to unburden myself, either through talking to other people or simply through relaxing and kind of admitting to myself, you know, like why my day was good or bad. So, what AA says is, AA says, look, we're not going to take this away from you. We recognize that you have a habit in your life that is important to you. There's, you have a craving for a certain type of reward. What we're going to do is, we're just going to change the routine a little bit. So, now, when you get home from work, instead of going to a bar, we're going to ask you to use that same cue and come to an AA meeting. And at the AA meeting, it used to be you'd go to the bar, you'd have a couple of drinks, then you'd like start telling everyone about your problems or start talking about your day. When you come to an AA meeting, you're going to do the exact same thing. You're going to talk about your problems. You're going to talk about your day, but you're going to do it with other people. And in fact, we're going to create an environment where it is expected that you will talk about the things that are meaningful to you, right? At the beginning of an AA meeting, everyone stands up and they say, hi, my name is Jeff. I'm an alcoholic. And then they tell their story about being an alcoholic or what was hard that day. And, And that's a part, that's how AA meetings work. If you've ever been to an AA meeting and anyone can go to an AA meeting, most of them are open to to people who aren't alcoholics and it's well worth going. It's a very emotional, very cathartic experience. And so what AA says is they say, look, we're not going to change the cue or the reward. We're just going to change the routine. Instead of Going to a bar at six o'clock and telling everyone about your day after having three drinks, you're going to go to an AA meeting at six o'clock and you're going to tell everyone all about your problems, not after a few drinks, but after saying, my name is Jeff and I'm an alcoholic. And this is why AA is so successful is because it does not try and change your behavior entirely. It tries to help people change this one habit by finding a new behavior that corresponds to the old cues and that delivers something similar to the old rewards.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, we are all making money, but is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You gotta beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password and then i have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So the last concept that I really wanna go over before you gotta go is keystone habits, because I think these are so powerful, so interesting. Can you first define what a keystone habit is, and then we can talk through it a bit?
1: Sure. So what we know is that some habits are more important than others. That some habits, when they change, they tend to set off this chain reaction that changes other patterns in people's lives as well. Exercise is a great example of this, right? When many people start exercising habitually, on the days that they exercise, it's easier for them to eat more healthfully. And, and this doesn't necessarily make any sense when you think about it. Like, I don't know why when your, your legs are sore, it's easier to eat the salad rather than the sandwich in the cafeteria. But, but we know that that's true, right? We also know that oftentimes, and people aren't aware of this, but studies show it's true, that when people exercise on the days that they exercise, they tend to use their credit cards less. They procrastinate less at work. For many people, exercise is a keystone habit that when, when they begin exercising habitually, it changes other patterns in their lives, such as eating patterns and spending patterns and, how, and procrastination patterns. And, and so as a result, when people are trying to figure out what habit to focus on, the answer is, if you can figure out what that keystone habit is for you, if you change that keystone habit, then the other habits in your life will begin to change almost automatically without you having to work quite so hard.
0: Mm. So it's basically like a domino effect. You get this one habit started and then you think differently about yourself and you start to do other things that positively impact your life. So the other thing that I just want to stress to my listeners is that if you were like an athlete in school growing up, if you were an athlete your whole life, then then exercise is not going to be a keystone habit. So how do people actually find out what keystone habit they should do? Like what are the signs that it's a a good keystone habit for you?
1: Yeah, so you're exactly right. So keystone habits, they tend to have a lot of power because they change how we think about ourselves. So yes, if someone was like a high school athlete and they started exercising again, it's probably not going to change how they think about themselves. It's not going to change their self-image. But if there's someone who... is unaccustomed to exercise who are kind of irrationally scared of exercising, they, they worry like, I'm going to look, I mean, you know, I'm going to look dumb. I don't know like what shoes to use. Then when they start exercising, it'll kind of change their self image of themselves. They'll begin thinking like, like, you know, I'm the type of person who goes running every morning. And that type of person, they don't pull out their Amex and buy something they don't need. They don't eat unhealthily in the cafeteria. They eat the salad. And so when people are trying to figure out the keystone habits in their own lives, one of the things that they ought to do is they ought to look for these kinds of change that seem irrationally scary, right? The type of thing that like, it seems like it should be easy for me to change this thing, to start doing this activity, to stop doing that activity. But like, for whatever reason, whenever I think about it, I get kind of Anxious, right? Irrationally. I know that it should be easy to start running in the morning, but when I think about it, I just like it makes me kind of anxious. It makes me a little bit uptight to even think about doing it. That means that that's something that ties into how people view themselves. And when they begin to change that thing, then almost automatically, it'll change how they see themselves. And that's really what we're going for, is that when you start seeing yourself in a different way, you start seeing yourself as the kind of person who exercises, or you start seeing yourself as the kind of person who doesn't smoke or doesn't have a drink after work, as the kind of person who doesn't get angry with your kids or spends more time being present with your wife or your husband. Once you start behaving that way, your image of yourself in your own head starts to change. And that's how the other behaviors flow out automatically.
0: Hmm, that topic is so interesting to me. So Charles, thank you so much for your time. The last question I ask all my guests is, what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: You know, I think that in general, one of the things that the research tells us and that I've definitely found in my own life is that the, the more we give ourselves time to think deeply about the choices that we're making, the more we make better choices. And so one of the big questions is to ask, ask yourself, you know, am I spending time on the things that actually matter to me? Or have I simply gotten into a autopilot mode where like, because I have 30 emails today, I'm going to spend an hour and a half doing emails. And of course, if you spend an hour and a half doing emails, you're going to have 40 emails tomorrow. It is natural to get into a place where our habits take over and we stop making decisions because it's easier not to make decisions. But the most successful people are the ones who force themselves to make choices every single day. Because of course, the most important choices you can make is what am I going to spend my time on and what am I going to say no to? And it really pays off.
0: I love that. Those are some great productivity tips. And I'd love to talk to you about your other book, Smarter, Faster, Better One Day, Charles. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: You can look me up online at Charles Duhigg or CharlesDuhigg.com, or I'm on Twitter at C Duhigg or really anyway. And anyone who emails me, I can promise you that I will actually read the email and respond to you.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Charles, for your time.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Wow. What a great conversation with Charles. You know, I've been looking forward to this day for such a long time. I've wanted Charles on my podcast since I first started Young and Profiting almost four years ago, like three and a half years ago. And I was consistent. I kept messaging him and messaging him until he finally agreed to come on the show. So I'm so thankful that we had this conversation. And Charles really dropped some valuable gems. Something that really stood out to me was that stat that he gave us, that Wendy Wood at USC found that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. That's like half our behaviors every day. A habit starts as a decision, and it's a decision we make quite a bit. And the habit officially forms when we stop consciously making that decision and yet continue to act on it. So that's what a habit actually is. Charles let us in on the anatomy of our brain. Every animal on Earth has a basal ganglia. It's a part of our brain that is in charge of making habits. It's located towards the inner center of the brain. And without habits, no species would have ever evolved. To understand your own habits, you need to identify the components of your habit loops. Once you've diagnosed the habit loop of a particular behavior, you can look for ways to supplement old vices with new routines. There are three main steps to break down a habit and I'll recap them in this outro. The first main step is to identify a cue, which is a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. The driver of this habit loop is a craving, anticipating that reward. It's easier to change behaviors when cues are disrupted. The second step is to identify your routine. What is the typical behavior developed continuously after that cue? The third is the reward. The reward is what the basal ganglia latches onto and makes an action habitual. Rewards are powerful because they satisfy cravings, but we're often not conscious of these cravings that drive our behaviors. Our brain pays attention to rewards and punishments. An example of this is social media. Social media makes it easy for us to access these rewards. When I get onto social media, my reward is seeing my fans' comments. And then I feel fulfilled. I feel happy. I feel accomplished. Social media platforms create a back and forth and anticipation of this feedback. It understands what kind of rewards we want. The more I get these rewards, the more I visit the social media sites. We shouldn't think about extinguishing a habit— That's not really possible. Rather, we should think about changing our habits. Through willpower, you can ignore a habit all you want, but in times of stress, you're going to fall back on that habit because you really haven't changed anything. Diagnose what your cue, routine, and reward are in a bad habit you want to break, and then find a new routine that corresponds with that cue and creates a new reward. We have habits everywhere in our lives, but certain routines, keystone habits, lead to a cascade of other actions because of them. When some habits change, they set off a chain reaction. An example of this is exercise. When people start exercising, they stop spending as much. They start eating better, and they do better at work. To find the right keystone habit for you, you have to think about what is gonna change your own self-image of yourself. Look for the type of change that seems irrationally scary. If you've never worked out before, then working out will be a great keystone habit. But if you've been working out since you were 12, then not so much. Imagine how much easier and more fulfilling your lifestyle could be if you discovered keystone habits that naturally put the rest of your life in place. So here's my challenge to you. Discover your own keystone habit. What habit could drastically change your life? Think about it, determine what it is, and then act on it. This was such an inspiring conversation with Charles and I hope you all learned something and learned as much as I did. Thank you for listening to another episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with or LinkedIn, just search for my name, it's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team as always. This is Hala signing off.